As we begin 2020, I find myself still processing everything that happened in the last months of 2019, and of course, what's going on in our world right now. Stories of people and their struggle to live, to have dignity and fundamental human rights, especially those whose struggle goes unreported or unheard. I mean, that has long been the focus of this podcast. When I think about how I want to start 2020, I know I want to continue that mission because despite all our technology, all our information, there are still too many struggles that go unheard and of course misinformation that seeks to keep individuals and communities silenced. Today I bring you the story of the Maasai people of Tanzania and Kenya, who right now are engaged in an intense and largely unknown struggle to keep their homes and their traditional way of life. The who why and how of it all you will hear in today's program thanks to three Maasai voices that I had the pleasure of recording during the most recent Video for Change gathering in South Africa. And one more fact for you before we dive in. Now, some might imagine by this introduction, this is an African story. But what you will hear if you stay with us on this program is that this is in fact a global struggle, a global story where many nations are involved. But don't take my word for it. Let's get into it. What are we on Sunday, the fourth day here at V4C. And... Um, of the many stories that we've, we're learning about, I'm certainly learning about for the first time. And I know for many listeners, there are stories from this gathering that they would have never heard about, not in newspapers, media, online. Um, there are also places in the world where they just don't get the attention, right, of what's happening. Mm -hmm. And to understand a very specific story, but uh, perhaps with much larger connections to the rest of the world. Uh, I have brought uh, a guest and I'm very pleased that he can sit with me. Uh, Sam, if you could introduce yourself, uh, especially as you normally maybe present yourself at gatherings and... Yeah, I'm Samuel Nangiria from Tanzania, a Maasai community, um, indigenous community. Uh, we reside in northern Tanzania, the greater Serengeti Maasai Mara ecosystem. Um, and I'm here as a leader, as an activist, uh, participating in this video for change uh, um, session in South Africa. Yeah. Yes. And for people at home, I mean, some names are famous. Maasai is a name that's quite famous, uh, I, I think, for me. Uh, Serengeti, also a known thing, but to help people in this world who, uh, you know, the education is <laughs> what it is. I, I said we, we are residing within the Serengeti, the greater Serengeti, Ngorongoro, Masai Mara ecosystem. This is uh, the northern part of Tanzania and southern part of Kenya, where the Serengeti is extending from Ngorongoro, Loliondo, Serengeti, and Masai Mara is, a, is a, an ecosystem where wild beast. It's a famous uh, migratory route of wild beast crosses the Mara River. This is, a, I think, it's one of the the natural remaining uh, migratory route. I think it is the biggest in the world now. We have three million wild beasts crossing 
every year coming to Tanzania and rotating within the ecosystem. So Masa is actually a part and parcel of the ecosystem because we were there before the conservation model, conservation idea, modern conservation laws, uh, modern conservation approaches came into being. We've been rotating with wildlife uh, all along within the Serengeti Mara ecosystem. So uh, this is where I reside and this is where I was born. This is where my fathers and my grandfathers were born. And we are still living in harmony with wildlife. Uh, up to date. Uh, in, within the same country, you also have uh, cities, you have other, of course, you have other cultures, uh, you have the changes that are happening, right? How are the changes in the country, maybe even in the region, impacting the way people live? Um, there, there's quite a lot of uh, visible impact to from the western changes or the whatever globalization or, or development for that matter but uh the most significant change that we have witnessed in the Masai community is all about the arrangement of land after the first contact with european um, colonial administration this is uh 1940 is when the 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 british uh started uh British colonial government started some discussion around conservation in a modern way. Um, this is a conservation that takes peop uh, people aside and then separating the people with nature for that matter. And then um, in 1950, they started discussing with Maasai traditional leaders. And that discussion went on up to 1958 when the, there was a conclusion uh, where we see the agreement between 12 Maasai traditional leaders and the British governor by the time. So um, from the record available, it, it was uh, a little bit of pull and push around how the relocation, you know, land, uh, water. There was a lot of discussion around the future. Yes. But nevertheless, uh, the Maasai is uh, with an consciously or unconsciously accepted to, to live and so this is the biggest uh, and i think noticeable change that we see in terms of the modernity and and other land uses coming into area so serengeti which is around 14,000 plus square kilometer was cut off from the, the bigger maasai territory and established as a national park and the maasai were pushed to to lolionda and gorongoro and Gorongoro, a southern part of the Serengeti, was established as a, a multiple land use where the Maasai could coexist with wildlife as they were doing before the before the before the colonial administration. Because in the national park, within national yes, parks, this is you can't park. live. Yes, you can't live in the national park completely. This is a no-go zone. Hmm. Is a high level of uh, protected protected areas in Tanzania. Status is completely no-go zone. So not even grazing, no crossing, no entering unless you go through the gates. So this is a. Um, this is a, a fortress uh, sort of a conservation hmm. idea. So um, that is one. But on, on another end, yes, we are not an isolated. Partly, yes, we are a people. We are regarded as the last tribe in, in Africa. Mm. One of the iconic indigenous people that have been able to stand strong against uh, global and influences. People who have been able to stay on their own, self-sufficient in terms of traditional leadership, uh, traditional um, conflict management system, people who have been able to carry on life 
without necessarily wanting any any support in terms of roads, electricity. You know, these are the people living in an isolation. With the government policies now after independence, yes, uh, the government of Tanzania by then started a, a policy called villagealization, putting people in the village okay. so that you can take the so-called social services. And we were impacted seriously. That was 1970 because uh, the mass, I say, no, we cannot be put in a village because we cannot lead a sedentary life. Right, we, we have, if you're put in a village, then you, you have to stay there. You have to stay there permanently. And our livelihood does not allow for permanency because we rotate according to the to the to the rotation of nature, rains, you know, salt, following. So the mother is said no, and there was eviction. The mother's homes were burned by government by then. But the mother said no, we are defending our livelihood because we cannot stay together and we put all the cows together, and then we go. We don't go. You mean sitting there as a sedentary village, modern village. Yeah. So the government of our first president said, no, okay, to hell with them. We don't take them social services. So this is one of the reasons why we are so much marginalized. There is no uh, social services in our areas, no hospital, no roads, no nothing. And because we, 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 we chose to stand for our our traditional lifestyle, which government couldn't understand. They were they thought maybe we are loitering because we couldn't do much and we wanted to be resettled as a matter of support. So um, over time, because we were left aside, like leave them alone. So government uh, and we were living as we as now we live with wildlife. So government now started taking land for conservation, taking land for business. And in my area in in, in 1992. Is where so that is the the significant um, turning points is conservation idea that is one, two is villagealization, and the masses refused. Three is the business we we have in our area. The government entered into an agreement with the royal family from Dubai to do the handing um, of wildlife in in our villages. So the royal family of Dubai receives in exchange for money, I suppose, right? They purchase. A or they can use a a piece of land. Yeah, the idea is uh, I we have the agreement. What mm. they did is uh, there was a move to to ask the Maasai to accept, but the Maasai refused. But the government said, yeah, we can sign the agreement on behalf because the agreement and and the business is is looking forward to get money to be able to bring development to people. So because they don't know what development is, we need to get money to, to bring them hospital, to bring them schools. Yeah. So uh, so it gets assigned in yeah, the name of the Masai. Yeah, it, it was named, in fact, it was signed by three people, district commissioner who in, in on behalf of the central government. And then uh, we have district executive director who is somebody responsible for development. And then we have the MP, member of parliament, signing on behalf of the people. So it, it is illegal, but they had to do it because they wanted the money. And... From there, yes, uh, this is another big turning point when it comes to issues and changes and shaking around our traditional system and life and so forth. So it it, it ended up being a big, big issue uh, because the masses were relocated, the masses were banned, the masses, you know. And when we try to lobby through international community, uh, the royal family is... Uh, using business as a defense but also using diplomatic relationship because he's a ruler of another state so when you try to pinch him through business then he turns to be um, you know yeah, politi yeah politician yeah. than a business 
Talk about what they do on this land because I when you what they do is uh, hunting. Pure, yeah. pure hunting. So we're talking weapons, huh? Yeah, they're cutting guns, big yeah. guns. They organize for friends and families. You know, it's quite a big thing. And uh, surprisingly, Serengeti is uh, one of the most important uh, nature uh, sanctuary for wildlife. It's mm. actually the whole world is looking at Serengeti as an important area for for humankind. Yes. It's a, such an important area that needs to be protected. Right. But surprisingly, the government of Tanzania put... Uh, a businessman to hunt the wildlife in the edges of Serengeti. So wildlife are coming from the national park, they get hunt. Yeah. Because I say we, we don't allow hunting in the national park, but while this guy is actually less than a kilometer from yeah. the border of the park. So the wildlife are coming from the national park, they, they are hunted. So um, for us, there was a little bit of reluctance around if they are hunting wildlife, no problem, they can keep hunting as long as they don't interfere with our grazing pattern okay. and the way we use the land. So that one continued from 93 up to 2007 wow. when they started talking about land occupation. It's no more hunting alone. So this is where we started a big conflict. And 2009, there was a mass eviction. The biggest I can I can remember uh, evicting the massa is from a 1,500 square kilometer piece of land, a cross-section of so many villages, yeah. for the royal family to be able to hunt freely and establish something called the wildlife corridor. So um, we've been in a pull and push, uh, but we, we felt people have died, you know, a lot of destruction of economy, uh, you when, know, arrested. When an eviction happens, I'm sorry to interrupt, mm. when an eviction happens, what really happens to describe it? What happened is uh, the the government police comes to the to the area. Arm. They they don't have they don't get noticed. They don't get people noticed. Like you'll be banned, uh, and they ask people to get out of what they their belongings inside the homes. If they don't, they they ban the homes. They ban the houses. They ban the enclosure where we keep our cows. They ban everything, and then uh, yeah, you are told to go. So this is it's a very brutal exercise. People are beaten, you know, um, because some people don't want to get out of their homes. So they, they have to be forced out and, you know, a lot of disturbances and beatings and shooting. Some people are very arrogant. Masses are very people who can stand. Some men were shot. So uh, it's, it's something that I don't want to remember, but it is very sad because uh, it is the same thing that we are defending nature and our culture and everything for for the for the best of ourselves and the planet. But the government and politics and money are always against people who who protect and uh, resources, who protect land, who protect everything. And in this continued up to 2016 when we we have no choice but to we tried everything. We tried talking with the government, engaging. We even came to a point where we wanted to compromise, like saying, okay. We, we are ready to, to to be coordinated to, I mean, establish a common, a joint committee that coordinate grazing and hunting so that we can at least graze. Mm -hmm. But the government didn't want that, so we had to go to court. And we filed a case. That was September 2018, uh, 2017. And it's, a, it's, a, it's a court case in an effort to get the, the royal family out of the region. What happened is uh, we we filed we, we we filed a court case when eviction was happening, 
So we had a certificate of urgency accompanying the case. And also we have a separate application for a court, a court injunction or court order to stop the operation while the court is determining the case. So uh, what happened is we, we managed to get a court order to stop given the facts and all the evidences that a lot of eviction was happening and the case is filed now. So um, the government, uh, yes, before, after the court injunction was out, they they breached the, the court order, but later on, they, they, they came to respect. So now people have gone back, like a status quo has been restored, but uh, the case is running. Um, but when we, we had to use the, the village authorities to to file the court case but the village is part of the of the local government authority in Tanzania so the government had a preliminary objection on the on the court case that the village cannot sue the central government because it is part of the government mm -hmm. so that was yeah so itself. yeah so we had to go through that as a, an, an independent application where we had where the ruling actually came out and the court uh, this east african court of justice said no the villages have been suing the government in tanzania for many years and there are a lot of references to that so we at least went through that and the case is now being at the hearing level out of 14 um community witnesses that we had seven have been cross-examined and another seven are yet to come maybe the end of this month but also we had, um, after the hearing started, the government again brought another objection. They said we didn't evict people out of their village land. We evicted people from the national park. Mm -hmm. So we had to defend and we were told to, to bring the evidences to show that you were evicted from the village land and not in the national park. So mind you, this is, we are bordering the national park. Okay. So, um, and we had to, to go through a very technical process and sometimes we are not expecting and we 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 raised a lot of money as a community we contributed to to get the lawyers to support to 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 get the so when you told no you have to get us you have to to serve the court with evidence that right. you were uh, so we had to go through a process of mapping. Yeah, you have to prove you're that referencing. You know, yeah. doing a, a, a ground truthing process, a very technical, yeah. and we had to hire a geospatial person who could uh, do the the work for us. Yeah, it was very expensive. Even up to now, we still have to because it's based in Netherlands. We last time when he was was supposed to be to court to to be cross cross examined, we had to pay the ticket for him. To, to flown him to from Netherlands to Tanzania yeah. and now he's in, in Netherlands and he's not well, he came but the we had three day running session for the court but unfortunately they were only able to, to cross examine seven people out of 14 that we had including two uh, expert witness the one for maps and the one for law who mm -hmm. did the research on the law so yeah we see a lot of light ahead that right. we, we will win this case anyway mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for for the community, even for myself, I, I'm not very eager to see whether the ruling will be implemented. But I, I'm eager to see whether we have the ruling at our hands to make sure that it is something that we leave to our children yeah. to come and see that we fought and this land belongs to them. So this is really what we are very much after too. Yeah. Not really to see that the land is back yeah. now, but at least to have um, a court ruling as an evidence that we fought. We have 
everything to show how much you've been putting energy, killing people, my friends and my colleagues are killed. I have also been from 2009 to 2016, I was arrested 17 times myself and, and jailed in many occasions. And there was a time I was evacuated yeah. uh, because of security. So quite a big story around how we've been trying to engage, trying to talk, trying to advocate. But also because of that, we had to, we had, I had to open up to international community. We mm-hmm. we've been working with international media, all the media houses you know, France 24, BBC, Al Jazeera, CNN, you know, all these big uh, media houses. I've been able to come and and do um, like uh, film crews coming to our villages to to talk to people. We also organized an um, an online uh, petition with Avast.org. Avast is a UK based yeah. uh, online. Uh, you know group so we did and we ran like for one for three weeks we get around three million signatures coming along with us supporting with us worldwide and so there's been a lot of awareness around what is happening in Loliondo as a ground where this is a practical fighting between them the rich and the poor yeah. on the land so um We now have that case. We also have another case involving Thompson Safari. Thompson is a Boston-based tour company. It's quite a rich family from the U.S. They also been given a land by the government. Initially, the land was taken by the government for barley production. Later on, that land was turned to be a conservancy, like uh, an area for wildlife, and then they sold the government sold to Thompson Thompson Safari so that, that case is in high court of appeal in Tanzania now we are fighting because we we tried all the means but we couldn't so we had to to go to court and all this is all about exhausting yeah. all the possible avenues when it comes to fighting yeah. so we are not going to court because it is a, it's an option it's not the best option but it is the last option mm-hmm. when you can you can do yes If you were to summarize what you see happening, because on the one hand, we see governments, mm. big projects, they don't care. It seems they don't care, mm. even of people from their own country, mm. people who have been there for years. But then we also see, as you said, communities coming together here, sharing, helping one another. What is happening? What is about to happen? What do you feel uh, is in our near future as a, as a world, as, as communities? One is we are very grateful for the nature, that nature is re- reacting in the form of climate change. Because uh, the conservation group, the business community, the political systems have always been against nature. They've been doing all these big projects, uh, just like nothing will happen. Mm-hmm. We've been on the other side protecting ourselves, protecting our cultures, protecting our livelihood, protecting our future, protecting our in- integrity, protecting our identity. But we've been always f- uh, missing, we- we've been losing mm-hmm. because all these other powerful forces are against us. Now that the climate change is at the peak and everyone is feeling, uh, we see some uh, coming back from different groups. We see researchers are now acknowledging indigenous people, indigenous knowledge, traditional knowledge as a way, as a light, as a hope. We see our politicians, we see the mainstream society, we see a lot of, you know, protesting in Europe, protesting in America for, uh, you know, rebellion extinction. So we are now feeling like people are coming back to us and we feel like there will be a support soon. On, on the indigenous uh, traditional systems. That is one thing we see. But also, given all the challenges and myself being a pioneer of so many initiatives in Africa, 
uh, with a particular video and video for change, I, I foresee uh, a quite a strong unity and solidarity of indigenous people in Africa. We are among, with um, my colleagues, we are working to establish a Pan-African living culture. Uh, why are we focusing on culture? Because all along, um, the colonial administrators or colonial governments, you know, religion, which was a, as, a, as a result of a Western uh, Christianity, Muslim, all these things have been focusing on culture, to kill the culture because culture is a factory that produces people, that produces ideologies, that produces imagination, that produces knowledge. So all the way they've been fighting the traditional leadership to replace with political leadership, a leadership that they can use mm. to advance their interests. All along they've been fueling, they've been putting money for the so-called modern education system mm. or Western education system because they want to, to dissemble, to, dis, to, to, to disrupt uh, indigenous knowledge, to disrupt you know, uh, systems of knowing, you know, all these things. So for the case of now, how do you go forward? Yes, we have land or lands or other ecosystems and we have people and livelihood and then we have the knowledge in the middle as a as a propelling engine for connecting these other things so uh, i'm imagining that we are coming together to strengthen and try to revive our cultures which is actually the engine that has kept so much going keep us so much going but also we want to see the cultures have been so resilient. There's been a lot of energy put to destroy the cultures. But the cultures are, yes, destroyed, but still going. So we need to see that resilience is something to capitalize on. So uh, this is the two things that I see the world coming back. Mm. Uh, and I also see our solidarity in the future uh, when addressing the core issue. Because they've not been learned. What the colonial did is they made sure that they detach the land from people. Yeah. They detached the land from culture, so they made a law on land alone as a standalone object. Yeah. So, so that you can, uh, we've been fighting for land right, not fighting for the common good, not fighting for the culture. We talk about land yeah. because this we've been they've been successfully detached it from. So we now want to go back to heal our wounds and to see how we can reconnect with nature by using culture. So this is what I foresee in the future. Yeah. Sam, I, I wish you all the best and I will be in my own way there to be with you and support you. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, I look forward to hearing good news and seeing more of the unity you're describing. Yeah. I feel like I'm also seeing it here. Thank you so much. Yeah. My name is Kola uh, from Kenya, a Maasai indigenous community from southern part of Kenya. And uh, I am so pleased and uh, pleasure. I had I have pleasure that uh, I have been among the group which has been uh, welcome to participate in the video for change in South Africa. When you describe your home, how do you how do you describe it? My home, yeah. I can say that uh, I was blessed to be born in a naturally 
a beautiful place surrounded by mountains and some forest also a couple of uh, rivers we are lucky that at least we have some water not very far although still other people can travel a bit distant but i was lucky to be closer to a river and also in 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 the forest but uh, i can still say that uh, there are some destruction of forest although we are reviving at the moment and uh, generally the place is uh, green but sometimes it is dry because of drought so some like uh, a few months ago there was a lot of drought which really affected most of the people because they are pastoralists and we are depending on livestock so many of the people have been really affected with the drought because many of the animals were dead others were skinny too skinny and so uh it was a bit tough but at the moment we are getting some a bit of showers which are really helping people and the animal to survive hmm. um your experience with video yeah. um when did this yeah. begin i can imagine there was a time where you weren't working with video and then there was a time where you started to and i'm curious how did it happen yeah i have just started using uh, participatory to join participatory video last year when uh, i was uh, uh, chosen to be a, among the group which was to go and uh, visit the uh, pit rivers museum following the issue of the artifacts which were collected and uh, taken there during that process uh, i was uh, introduced to participatory video which was my uh, my wish also to be part of it and also to be able as an activist a women right activist in my community and also standing for the right of my people i was lucky to be there and i requested if i can also be part of it and uh, by good luck also our people or myself was uh, given that uh, wish that uh, i started using participatory videos during uh, from that time up to this time that now i am in south africa and uh, i can say that uh, it is really bringing a lot of change hmm. yeah the the video camera when you bring it to a community especially the first time yeah. perhaps um how do people respond right because of course we know there i'm sure there have been some journalists they visit they leave maybe they bring some cameras or they bring whatever they bring and then they leave but here you are in your community and then you bring a camera yeah it is a bit uh, challenging because uh if you go to our place many people are literate they have not gone to school and in that uh, way at the moment we are using women because of gender equality um uh, we are trying to mix both women and uh, and men in the group and also uh in that in that process we decided to take uh, the unlearned women so that they can be also exposed to the world which 
they think that uh, or many people thought maybe they will never know anything but during that time when we started taking the camera to them it was uh, like it was a dream mm. because they never thought of uh, even holding it yeah. it was it was something that it it is unbelievable mm. but when they started using it was easy and uh, they enjoy using it and they can see that uh, in the future they can be they can comfortably use the uh, camera to fight or to speak their voices which are an ad mm-hmm. yeah earlier we had this discussion of the camera right remember we held the camera yeah. and it was the question what are you holding right and there are many answers uh, some positive about the camera some uh, about the possibilities some cautions about the risks about the some people say fake news and so forth when you hold the camera what do you see or what do you feel in your in your hand yeah when i hold a camera i can see light because through the camera i can speak unspoken voices of my community i can speak the real things that are going on inside my community that cannot be that could not been have seen by people when i when i i, I was not having a camera yeah. but when now i'm holding a camera i can go to the interior places i can go to the remote places i can go to places where other people have never gone so that i can expose what is happening there that need to be changed and need to be exposed to the world mm. yeah One more question Scala I know it's it's cold out here but um when you travel uh the the going to Oxford uh last year yeah. earlier this yeah. and now here we are in South Africa um and you have now so many I think contacts communication with people other indigenous people not just even Africa but other continents even yeah what do you what do you see how do you see this world uh i i'm curious you know what what all this experience tells you about the world yeah i am seeing the world is a different world and like now i have been traveling mm. i am different mm. other people are different but when we come together as indigenous community we are not speaking the same language we are not uh sharing uh, maybe cultures we are not living in the same place but if we try to look inside we are sharing the same calamities we are sharing the same problems we are passing through the same uh, oppression we are passing through the same tortures we are fa- passing through the same problems as indigenous community so when we come together we can make a change. Yeah. Scala, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah. And I feel very lucky not only that we're here talking uh, right now, but I know that we still have one or two days left where we can talk some more. Um so but uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Welcome.
introduce yourself. Yes, uh, I am Francis Shome Toilanengisa. I come from uh, Tanzania, Gorongoro district, where the world famous Serengeti uh, National Park is. And I'm here to attend uh, a workshop on the establishment of a Pan-African Living Culture Alliance. Yeah, and let's talk about, because I imagine there are people listening, when you say Pan-African Living Cultural Alliance. Of course, they've never heard the name yet. Uh, but let's talk about the, the reason for such an alliance. Uh, the reason for such an alliance is actually to enable indigenous uh, peoples in the African continent to unite, to come together, and to have a space where they can, they can come together and discuss issues around climate change, allow, around culture, around biocultural rights, around recognition of their traditional livelihoods, and uh, around actually uh, ensuring that we contribute to the conservation of our planet, conservation of the environment, in an attempt to protect the, 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 the planet from possible extinction. Shamit, here we, we have different groups gathering, different communities, uh, many of which have not met before. As you listen to conversations about people's struggle, about people's home, about their wishes and hopes, what do you, what do you see happening in the now, but also in the coming years? What I, I see, what I have uh, discovered as a result of meeting members from other groups, which are also struggling, is that uh, uh, Palka, or this alliance, could not have been more uh, timely. This is the right time for us to unite because we have more or less the same struggles and without uniting and having one uh, united space, without having a, a, a space where we can come together, exchange experiences and strategies on how to address these challenges, it will be very difficult for each group to struggle on its own. So it's really very important that we have this alliance. Mm. And for the people who are not uh, within the alliance, who are not indigenous groups, but maybe listening somewhere, uh, Europe, uh, even South America, Asia, what would you like to say to them? Because we know the world is very connected, but at the same time people are struggling and, and no one, it's seemingly no one knows. Yes, uh, what I would like to say to them is that, uh, that our struggle is part of the global struggle. What we are trying to do, actually, is to contribute to the efforts by various groups in our planet to conserve the environment and to reduce the climate change problems. So what I'm saying, we cannot succeed on our own, even if we unite as a, an a Pan-African alliance, we will still need people from other parts of the globe. We are in one village, one global village, and we need support from one another. So we will uh, definitely need support from other people outside of the African continent. Shamit, it's been a pleasure getting to spend time with you. I won't forget the songs that we've sung and the music we've played and also the, the conversations we've had. Uh, I wish you all the best and I look forward to more conversations and to seeing progress. Thank you for having me. Sam, Skola, and Shomit are founding members of Palka. You can hear more about their work on YouTube under the name Pan-African Living Cultures Alliance. 
You can also follow links and read more via InsightShare. I'll provide links to all of them in the show notes that accompany this podcast. You can either see them in your podcast app, where I hope you're subscribed to Citizen Reporter, or you can go to citizenreporter.org and look at them the old-fashioned way. I'm thankful for all of it. I'm thankful to you, the audience, for those who have donated over the past year and years. I'm thankful. This podcast is a commercial-free, independent project going since 2004. And once again, it makes a huge difference that you're listening to it. I'll be back real soon. And until next time, I'm Mark Fonseca Renderu. They call me Bicycle Mark. And I'll see you next time. See ya.